a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we speak with cancer patients, survivors, and menopause experts and specialists to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Danny Binnington, and today we're going to be discussing how to navigate tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. So many women say they really struggle with some really severe side effects of being on these long-term cancer treatments. And so I've invited Dr. Claire McCauley, a breast oncologist, speciality doctor, onto the podcast today, and a whole group of the women in my community, so that you get to ask the questions and for Dr. Claire McCauley to give you all the answers that you need. Thank you so much for your time. And Claire, as a breast speciality oncologist, do you actually even know quite how much havoc mm -hmm. treatments like tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors that you prescribe to your patients, I suppose on a daily basis, have on them and their lives? Well, I do, <clears throat> but I recognize that many of my colleagues may not, or it may not be a particular interest of theirs, or that people who are interacting with their oncologists might not get the impression that they do. So I do personally, but I understand that for many people who are breast cancer thrivers, that they may have a different experience. Yeah. And is there hope? Because at the moment, it feels like women are told to go on these treatments for five or 10 years. And then that's it. That's their lot. There's not much they can do. And women really struggle. And we know their quality of life is very much impacted. Is there hope that we can stay on those treatments? Yes, absolutely. That I mean, that's really what I'm hoping we'll get out of today is an acknowledgement that yes, these things are real. I think that's the first thing that I want people to to feel one that they're not alone and to acknowledge that their experience is real, but also then to say, well, what can we do about that? What things can we do that might be helpful? So yes, there are things that we can do that are helpful. And also to accept that we might try all of those things and it might be no better. And we also need to understand that that's a journey that and that might take a bit of time, it might take a bit of tweaking and fiddling about. But yes, I would hope very much that it, there is something that we can do that might help individual people be able to stay on an endocrine treatment because that's ultimately what we want. Yeah. And today we've just had everyone's pictures on. We're in a group of women from all, all over the UK. There are loads of us here. Everyone's had a history of cancer. And of course, women are on many of those treatments and perhaps they've tried different treatments. So without looking at individual cases quite as yet, what are tamoxifen and aromatases? How do they work? Why do they cause so much havoc? Let's talk yeah. about the treatments a little bit. Okay, so those people who have had an estrogen receptor positive cancer. So let's start there. And that's really what we're talking about today is people who've had an estrogen receptor positive cancer. And that's a very different beast to people who might have a triple negative cancer or something else. But we're going to be focusing today on estrogen receptor positivity. And let's start there. That means that the cancer cells within your cancer have an estrogen receptor on the surface. Now, that's important because that's a way that we can then manipulate that cancer cell, if you like, to reduce the risk of that cancer cell spreading or coming back at some point later. So the fact that your cancer expresses estrogen receptors is why you're being offered these treatments at all. And there are two main classes of treatment that people will have heard of, tamoxifen, which we'll talk about, and the aromatase inhibitors that might be anastrozole or exemestine or letrozole, depending on what your particular brand of choice is where you live. And basically, the point of both of these treatments is to reduce the exposure of your body to estrogen. Now, they work in slightly different ways. So tamoxifen is usually prescribed for women who are premenopausal at the time of their diagnosis. So that means that their cancer has happened before they've gone through the menopause. And that's the point in time that we take the, the setting. What happened when you cancer was diagnosed? What were you at that point? And the tamoxifen drug basically acts as a blocker for this estrogen receptor. And it acts as in different ways in different parts of the body for reason that we don't really understand, but it acts 
as an anti-estrogen, so against estrogen in some places, particularly in the breast and breast cancer cells. And it acts as a pro-estrogen, so as a positive estrogen, if you like, in other parts of the body, for example, the lining of the womb, the endometrium. So tamoxifen has a mixed action. And some of the side effects that we get from tamoxifen are because of its anti-estrogen effects. And some of the side effects might be because of the pro-estrogen effects. So that's tamoxifen. It is a blocker. It blocks the receptors that estrogen sticks onto. And although we have estrogen receptors in our breast and on breast cancer, we also have them in every other cell in our body, our eyes, our skin, our gut. All of the other cells in our body also express estrogen receptors, which is why when we give an anti-estrogen, we can have we can have side effects that have got nothing to do with breasts, for example, because joints, joint pain, skin, eyes, all sorts of things. So that's how tamoxifen works. Now, the aromatase inhibitors, they're slightly different. Basically, when we have been through the menopause, our ovaries stop producing estrogen in the way that we did when we were younger. And But we still have some circulating estrogen, and that comes from little the little glands that sit above our kidneys that are called our adrenal glands. And people will maybe have heard of them because I've heard of cortisol and stress and all those kind of things. But our adrenal glands create an, an androgen. And we have an enzyme in the rest of our body that converts that androgen into estrogen, usually in our fat cells. So we still have some estrogen production in our bodies after the menopause. It's just not coming from our ovaries. And the aromatase inhibitors inhibit that process. So it means that we're not making estrogen in our bodies within our fat cells, for example. So there are two different types of treatments. In general terms, we use tamoxifen for premenopausal women and aromatase inhibitors for postmenopausal women. There might be reasons why we don't do that or we make changes, but in general terms, they are the two drugs that we're using. And they both have quite similar side effects, as many of people who you will have, um, who have been part of this discussion and, and have been on them will recognise. I have a quick favour to ask. To help the show keep growing, please click the follow button on your podcast player. It really would mean a lot to me. Thank you. And a lot of women are actually really quite worried to even start those treatments because yeah. they've had so many awful stories yeah. um, about them and so many side effects. And of course, people go to social media and they might join our Facebook community because they're struggling. You don't really hear from women who are actually okay on those treatments. Yeah. What do women complain about when they come back and see you in clinic yeah. after yeah. they've started? Yeah, I think one of the things that would be helpful to get across today is that you might have some of these things, you might have none of these things, or you might have all of these things. And the difficulty for me as, as the oncologist is, I don't know which one of those you're going to be before we start. So we don't know really very easily how to predict who is going to have difficulties and who isn't. So that's the first thing to say is that you might read a big long list of side effects, they might the same as we might do with any drug, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get any of them. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you do get some of them, we can't do something to help you with them. But we do know that around about somewhere between 20 and 25%, so up to a quarter of people will never actually start the medicine that they're given. And we also know that somewhere between a third to a half of people won't complete the course. So it's a really big issue because if half of the people that we are giving the medicines to do not finish the course, for example, then that that benefit that, that we might be getting overall is being lost. And we'll, we'll talk later about an individual benefit. What might your individual benefit be? So, yes, it is a big deal because compliance or adherence to taking these medicines is actually quite poor. And the vast majority of that is because of the side effects. So the side effects that people might expect, I tell people that you're going to have a pretty shocking menopause. If you're premenopausal, that might be what happens. If you're postmenopausal, I might say to people, you might be going to have another menopause. Because even if you've been through the menopause, some of the symptoms might recur. Hot flushes, night sweats, sleeplessness, joint aches and pains, vaginal dryness and pain, um, skin dryness, itchiness, weight gain in terms of water retention. So they can cause water retention. So there's quite a big amount of side effects that people can have from these drugs and things that might be more serious. So for example, being on tamoxifen increases your risk of having an endometrial cancer. So that's a cancer of the lining of the womb. So, you know, there's there's every day living with things and there are bigger issues in terms of side effects of drugs. And those need to be in balance. The benefit that you're going to get from the drug needs to be in balance with the side effects that you might experience. And that, that for me is really, really important. I don't want people's quality of life to be worse than it would have been had they not been taking the drug. Because what's the point there is zero point in keeping you alive if in fact your quality of life is 
significantly detrimental is 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 significantly harmed as a consequence. But that's the difficult conversation, isn't yeah. it? Because at the moment, every woman who is uh, diagnosed with an estrogen-driven yeah. breast cancer is offered a hormone anti-endocrine treatment, and women embark on this often blindsided, often really worried already. And how do we then make that a little bit more personalized to us? How do we know? Often, you know, we hear it so often that women say their oncologists send them away and said, just take this little white tablet for the next 10 years, tamoxifen, without really any further conversation. And I think this is where it's really important for people to understand their own individualized benefit and risk profile, and also what their own risk appetite is. Somebody who might be offered a 2% additional survival benefit that we'll come to in a moment, that that might be worth it for them. For me, it might not be worth it. So we we might have individual uh, views about what willingness we are to take a risk and what side effects are not worth that risk or not worth that benefit. So perhaps what we could do, Danny, is, is to, I know before on your podcast, you've mentioned this idea about predict. And I wonder whether it might be helpful for us to put in some details of some fictitious patients and see, okay, let's see what these individual benefits are. Would that be something that would be helpful? We could try that and see. Amazing. Yeah, that would be great. And for anyone at home, if you think that's helpful, you can put a little thumbs up in the chat box. Don't unmute yourself. (laughs) Um, That would be amazing. I will will share my screen. Okay. And you can just give me a thumbs up, Danny. Let me know that you can see it. Yeah, absolutely good. Okay, perfect. So what we're going to do here is this is predict. And this is an algorithm based on thousands and thousands and thousands of studies and data from women with breast cancer about what happens to people in the long term. Now, anyone can access this. You can access this as a patient. You can see the web address for it there. If you just put predict breast into Google, you can access this for yourself. And this is what we use when somebody comes to us, when they first come and have had their diagnosis and we've got their information. This is what we as oncologists use to determine what treatment that we're going to offer people because we can't hold it all in our head and everybody's different, but this is what we use. And what we're going to do here is I'm just going to walk you through it to show you how we come to these decisions and what that might mean for you as an individual. So we're going to put in some details of your breast cancer that your oncologist and your breast team will know about you. You may or may not know about it yourself, but these are the kind of things that actually it would probably be helpful for you to know so that you can assess your own breast cancer risk and discuss that with your healthcare providers. So let's take let's take somebody I've called Tripti, right? So Tripti is 49. So we put that she was 49 when she was diagnosed with her breast cancer. And we'll say that she's pre-menopausal at the time she's diagnosed. And we'll say that she's got an ER positive cancer because that's what we're, we're, co- we're concentrating on today. And we'll say that she is negative for the HER2 receptor, which is a different kind of receptor. You'll, you'll know about Herceptin and other treatments that are a different type of cancer. But for the purposes of Tripti, we'll say that she's HER2 negative. And we'll say that her CHI-67 status is unknown because not all units actually check for that. And let's say that she's got a 12 millimeter tumor. So what that means is when she's had her operation and the pathologist has looked at it under the microscope, she's got a 12 millimeter tumor. And those who've had breast cancer will know that we grade the tumor according to how like breast tissue it looks and how abnormal it looks on a grading of one, two and three. So let's say that Tripti's got a grade one cancer. And let's say she found a lump herself, so it's detected by symptoms. And let's say that she had no positive lymph nodes. So again, people will know that when we're assessing you for your breast cancer, we're interested in has the breast cancer already spread to your lymph nodes. So let's say that Tripti, she's 49, she's got a 12 millimeter grade one cancer and she's got no positive lymph nodes. Okay, so we've missed something out because it will show us the details. Which one have we missed out? Um... Oh, so no. So we'll say no to this one here. So here are the treatment options that we can offer Tripti. But before we do that, let's just look at this table down here. This says that if Tripti has surgery only at 10 years after her diagnosis, 93 out of 100 women with the same diagnosis of Tripti will be alive in 10 years time. Okay, so this is the overall survival. At 10 years after diagnosis, 93% of people with the same situation as Tripti will be alive. So that's really important to understand from the beginning. I'm going to show you this one, which is what the icon, so you can see it in a graphical way. So what this shows is that 
four people within that 10 years with triptych diagnosis will have died of something else altogether. So they'll have died of been hit by a bus or a heart attack or something else. And three of those women will have died from their breast cancer at 10 years. But all of these other 93 women will be alive and well. Okay, so let's then put in what happens if we give her five years of hormone treatment. So if I click here that she has five years of hormone treatment here, what you will see is that one additional person will be alive in 10 years time from their hormone treatment. So just let that sink in. One additional person out of 100 people that we treat will be alive. The 93 who were always going to be alive will still be alive. The four who were going to die of something else were going to die of something else. And one additional person will be alive in 10 years' time. The problem is that in order to get that one person, we've had to give hormone treatment to all 100 and if I tell you that the rate of symptoms of difficulties are around about 30%, a third of these people are going to have symptoms that are going to be affecting their life for the sake of one person being alive in 10 years. So this is why it's really important to understand what it is that your individual circumstances are. Because you might come back to me and say, I can't sleep, I've got terrible night sweats, um, I feel terrible all the time, I'm depressed, I can't have sex with my partner because I've got a dry vagina. And I might say to you, okay, well, there's a one in a hundred, the, the benefit that you're getting is that you will have a 1% additional survival benefit in 10 years time or by 10 years time. Is that something that stacks up in your favor? Is that something that you want to endure for this additional 1% benefit? So let's look at somebody else. Let's look at Hannah, who's also 49. Okay, so let's say Hannah is 49. Let's put this to no for now. Hannah is 49. She is also premenopausal. She has an ER positive tumour, but let's say she's also HER2 positive. Okay, and let's say that she now has, she has a 30 millimetre tumour and it's grade three. And let's say that she has two positive lymph nodes. Okay, so 49 year old women with breast cancer are not the same thing. If we now look at what the results for that are, if we just look at the table, only 41% of those women like Hannah will be alive in 10 years time. This is a completely different type of situation to be in. And again, if we look at that as, as just in a visual way, we'll see that 41 of those 100 women like Hannah will be alive and well in 10 years time. But 55 people like Hannah will have died from their breast cancer. And the same four people who were going to die of something else will have died of something else. So this is a completely different situation to find yourself in. Now, Hannah, in this particular situation, is likely to be offered chemotherapy. So let's put the chemotherapy in first. So if Hannah is offered chemotherapy, 15 additional people will be alive as a consequence of the chemotherapy. Okay, so you can see this is why we offer people chemotherapy, because it offers them a survival advantage. If she also has her septum, then an additional 10 people will also be alive. So you can now see we're starting to creep up in terms of the, the benefit that Hannah is going to get from the other treatments that she's offered. But if we just look at the hormone treatment, we'll say five years to keep it the same. If, we're, if she takes hormone treatment, an extra 13 people are going to be alive with the hormone treatment in her situation. So even leaving aside the benefit from the other treatment that she's going to get, a 13% additional survival benefit for Hannah at 49 is a completely different situation to a 1% benefit for Tripti at age 49. And this is why it's really important to understand that just because someone else might have side effects or difficulties or whatever else, you are not the same. And it's important that you contact your healthcare provider if you're worried about your treatment so that you can really understand what is the benefit to you. Because a 13%, you can see there that the hormone treatment is more beneficial to Hannah than the chemotherapy was or the Herceptin was. Now added together, obviously they're more and she would be offered both of them together. But if you just look, the effects of the hormone therapy here are the biggest effect on her overall survival as a single agent. And each one of these is cumulative. So each one she has increases her survival benefit. So you can see that it's really important to understand where you are in this process, because this helps us make decisions to guide you about whether we try to manage the symptoms that you've got or whether the symptoms that you've got are not worth it because the, you, the benefit that you think you're going to get is not worth it to you. 
Now, a 1% benefit might be useful to me and not useful to you, Danny. I have to say it depends, I think, how, how impactful your side effects are and what your risk appetite is. Some women will come and say, I want to do anything. And that's fine. This will give you some benefit. It will be beneficial to you, but that benefit is really small. Some women might say, actually, my quality of life is impacted such that I don't want to continue on this treatment for a 1% benefit. So it's really important that individuals understand what benefit is that they are getting from the treatment they're being offered. I am not sure about how people at home feel, but I remember back to the early days of my own diagnosis and looking at charts like that would have really freaked yeah. me out. And I can already now looking at this feeling sort of my anxiety rising yeah. because you're really looking at survival rates and what does that mean for me? And for a long time, I didn't want to know exactly where I was because I was too scared of what the answer might be. However, when I guess you have a patient on tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors, it's really important to know those facts so that you can decide whether you want to stay on this treatment, whether that treatment is right for you, um, whether you need to tinker with it. And I know we're going to get to that. How can we stay on those treatments? But it's a really difficult conversation to have, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's, I mean, nobody wants to be talking about their long-term survival, you know. And there'll be some women who will come in who will sail through all of their treatment, who don't feel the need because they just want to get their head down and get the treatment done and get out the other side and are prepared to accept whatever it is and don't really want to know, and that's fine. However, if you are talking about taking or not taking a treatment because of your side effects, I think it's really important to understand what you're weighing it against. Because, for example, if the Hannah in the second situation, her, that her biggest outcome, in the, the biggest influence on her outcome will be the hormonal treatment over and above the other things that she's already had. But for Tripti, it might be completely irrelevant, really, to be honest, if you've already got a 93% chance of surviving your cancer in the long term anyway. So I think it's, it's about knowing when you're ready. And I think it's really important, Danny, we tell people a lot of this information at the beginning when, frankly, nobody can remember anything. They're so bamboozled and overwhelmed and the anxiety and the unknownness and the uncertainty of it all, that is not the time to be giving people lots of information because they, we know that they forget most of it anyway. But it's an ongoing dialogue. So I tend to drip out that information to people over time. We talk to them about the beginning and often it's about, is it chemotherapy or not chemotherapy? That's usually the kind of first discussions. Do we think that you, you're you somebody who would benefit from chemotherapy or not? And then we can talk about radiotherapy and hormones and some bisphosphonate treatments and all sorts of other things as we get a bit further down the line when people are a little bit more settled into the diagnosis, their place on the journey. And, and this is the next step and feeding information in a way that helps people to understand it at the right time. Because you don't need to know if you're going to have chemotherapy, you don't no. need to know anything about hormones, you know, probably six months or even nine months, you know, at, at the beginning, we can talk about that later when your chemotherapy is finished, for example. Yeah, we just had a question saying, um, this chart that you just showed, um, does it show deaths only? What about statistics related to recurrence? So this is an overall survival. So that, that this particular algorithm is about people who are alive. It doesn't say in those numbers, there's different ways of doing it, what your chances of being alive, disease-free. So that's a different thing. And again, that that's a different, we're just looking at survival benefit when we're talking about these treatments at this point. But yes, so some of those people may have had a recurrence and be living with a recurrence, but not have died of their breast cancer. So that person's absolutely correct. Yeah, thank you. And I just wanted to feed back a really positive message to you throughout from a lady called Joanne saying that was incredible. Thank you so much. She lives in Spain. While the medical care was incredible, it is very medicalized and it's incredible to see that in actual fact, there are other options. So amazing. You're spreading your information. <laughs> thank you about that. Um, so then we've decided to stay on those treatments or many women decide to give them a go for their reasons um, personal to them. They've discussed that with their oncologist and they come back to you into clinic and they have persisting symptoms. A lot of times women say to me, um, this wonderful woman, I know she said, I can't even take the duvet off me in yeah. the morning. My hands are so stiff. Yeah. My joint ache is severe, um, yeah. mood, anxiety, depression. Yeah. What do we and do all, then? So all of those things that you've described are, are relatively common. So we know that people, joint aches and pains are going to occur in somewhere between 30 to 40%. So, so at least a third of women are likely to have some kind of difficulty. And it depends, I think, in, in the journey of how long you've been on it as to what we might do about that. So what we do know is that for some women, the 
the side effects will get better the longer you're on the treatment. So that's not uncommon that actually the side effects in the first three, four, five months, by the time you get to six months, for many people, they're starting to wear off. Now, that is six months of you know, discomfort and all the rest of it, but it might be worth persevering if you've got those problems. So the first thing is to say, don't panic if this is the beginning, it might get better. So joint pain is a big one, um, vaginal pain and dryness, which, you know, I also, as you well know, um, Danny, I also specialise in sex after menopause and whether that's a surgical medical menopause or natural menopause. So vaginal dryness and pain can be a really, really big problem. And that can also encompass what we call the genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which is a bit of a complicated title, but basically it means anything that happens in your pants as a consequence of estrogen depletion. So that includes vaginal pain, dryness, bleeding, incontinence, Maintenance, difficulty, urinary tract infections. So all of the things that can happen in our pelvis can be influenced by being on these medications. And I don't know necessarily that oncologists routinely ask. I routinely ask because it's my area of interest, but I'm not I'm not clear how routinely we ask those. And they can be really, really profound. You know, women who can't sit down, for example, women who can't ride a bike, women who are having recurrent urinary tract infections. And they're not always the things that one, Patients might put two and two together and realise that that is a consequence of their treatment and two things that oncologists routinely ask about. So I think joint pains, um, fluid retention, uh, edema and swelling, ankles and those kind of things can be problematic in addition to the lymphedema that you might have as a consequence of your surgery. Um, fatigue, tiredness, depression, just not quite feeling like themselves. So all of those things are things that people might present with. And then... Because there aren't that many different treatments, right? Tamoxifen is tamoxifen. And yeah. you have mentioned a few brands of the aromatase inhibitors. I guess yeah. if we then want to stay on these treatments, those are the treatments yeah. and we get on with it or how? Well, not, not necessarily. There are lots of other additional things that we can do to help to manage the side effects. So the first thing I would do with somebody if they're having really difficult side effects is to stop it. I would stop it for four to six weeks and see if the side effects get better then we will know that it's the drug. Now, the reason that that's important might be because if you, let's say you were already on HRT before your cancer was diagnosed, for example, if you were already on HRT and that HRT has been stopped because of your ear point, then you're going to have an, a, an element of menopausal symptoms likely anyway. So for example, I had a woman the other day who said I've got this terrible joint pain and I said, tell me about what had happened before. And she said, well, actually I went on HRT because I had terrible joint pain. Well, the likelihood is that she's going to have joint pain, whether she's on the aromatase inhibitor or not. So it's also about trying to unpick what really is the medicine and what isn't the medicine. And the best way to do that is to stop the treatment for four to six weeks and see. Most people will know within about four to six weeks whether things are better off the treatment or not. If it is better off the treatment, then we might think about, well, is it tolerable? What are the side effects that you're having? Shall we switch it to a different medicine? So, for example, where I work, letrozole is the treatment of first choice, but we might switch it to an astrozole or aromadex or one of the others. They're, they're all the same type of drug, but they're all different brands and they work in slightly different ways. So it might be that you might have side effects with one and not with the other. And it's not uncommon for me to switch people from one to the other once we've established that it's actually the drug that's causing the problem. Because there's lots of reasons why we might feel rubbish after we've had a breast cancer diagnosis for all sorts of reasons. It might be that we're not doing the exercise that we used to do before because we're tired. It might be because we've gained weight. It might be because we're eating differently. There's all sorts of other things. And so before we put it down purely to the drug, it's important to make sure that the, that the drug is at least contributing and then look at how we might manage that. It might be a switch to something else. It might be, okay, actually, if you're not a great deal better off the drug, than you were on it, what lifestyle things do we need to look at and what other medicines might we be able to, or, or approaches might we be able to add in that might help you with your side effects. So there's lots of tweaks and changes and things that we can do. I really don't want people to go away thinking it's take it or leave it. It absolutely is not. So there's different ways to manage different side effects. So for example, there are medicines that we can use for hot flushes, for example, and there are in fact brand new medicines in trials just now, which might be an absolute game changer in the fullness of time for breast cancer patients. They're not widely available just now, but they are being used in phase three clinical trials. That means they're nearly ready to come to market. That might be a game changer for things like hot flushes and night sweats. 
that are completely non-hormonal and um, they're still t- to come but there are other drugs so for example venlafaxine which is an antidepressant drug in low doses not the antidepressant dose but in lower doses can be extremely helpful for hot flushes and i've given it to many patients and they've really found the benefit of it now what that means, of course, is that every time you're adding in a drug, you're adding in the possibility of side effects from that drug. Nothing comes for free. So again, we need to balance. You know, some of those drugs might have side effects that are intolerable to you, for example, but it's maybe worth trying. So there's a drug called venlafaxine or some of the other antidepressant drugs that could be used in low dose. Um, one of them in particular, um, you can't combine with tamoxifen. So you just need to be aware of that. Your doctor should be aware of which ones can and can't go with tamoxifen but venlafaxine certainly can um there's other drugs there's a drug called clonidine which people can is actually licensed for use for hot flushes for the menopause and doesn't contain any hormonal elements so that might be helpful so there are definitely things that we can do to help manage with drugs and then there are lifestyle things losing weight is the single biggest thing you can do for yourself in terms of your breast cancer recovery we know that people who are overweight are at significantly higher risk of breast cancer in the beginning and although we don't know for definite because there are trials ongoing what we do know is that weight reduction may reduce your risk of your breast cancer recurring we don't know that for definite but we think it's probably likely so weight weight loss for example that also helps with joint pain and it also helps with hot flushes thinking about um different types of bed linen so bamboo, wool bed linen, cooling pads on the bed, all sorts of other things. Avoiding alcohol. Alcohol is often a trigger for hot flushes for people. That's not to say you need to live a teetotal life, but just thinking about what your alcohol intake is like. Spicy foods, having a fan with you, you know, a, a mist spray, ways that you can manage if these troublesome side effects come about, particularly around hot flushes. So that's those joint aches and pains we know that activity helps so often people will tell me you know i wake up in the morning and i feel an old lady and i can't lift the duvet off but actually when i get going things start to ease off and that's a fairly classic pattern of how people describe this so things like um weight bearing exercises yoga pilates thing stretchings Things like that can be very helpful in terms of the exercise front and keeping active and not becoming the old lady because the more the more contracted and sore we are, the less we move, the more contracted and sore we become. So exercise can also be really helpful. I often advise people to try magnesium. So my favourite way for magnesium is for an Epsom salt bath because it's absorbed through the skin. It's also very helpful if you're suffering with insomnia because it's very sleep-inducing at night time. So an Epsom salt bath, twice or three times a week or taking oral magnesium or magnesium sprays or all of the other things that you might come across in kind of general menopause care can be very helpful as can vitamin D. So making sure that you're um, on a high dose vitamin D supplement can also be helpful. Plus or minus calcium. We don't really know about the calcium part of it, but certainly it's not going to do you any harm. Hey, thank you for listening so far. This podcast has an amazing Facebook community full of inspiring women supporting each other and sharing their stories. Please come and be part of it. We'd love to have you in the group. Click the link in the show notes and come in now. See, everything makes so much sense when you explain it like this, but we know many women are sent away just with a prescription to go to their pharmacist and pick up the tamoxifen. And then we have all of these amazing groups because our amazing community of women has really grown and we have lovely evenings where we get together and women talk amongst each other with lots of tips. So you'll hear women say, oh, what about halving your dose of tamoxifen or Mm -hmm. taking it on a different time of the day? Or what about asking for a different brand? Mm -hmm. Is there something in it? that yes. you as an oncologist or is yeah so what's I, in it just, what? I, I don't really care what's in it Danny if it makes people feel better that's all I'm interested in is it doesn't really matter because because there is also a significant psychological component to a lot of this which people don't really want to say out loud but it is also true you have been through a life-changing experience you are sitting with anxieties about the future that you didn't have before there is a huge interplay between our um, psychological well-being and our welfare and our physical biological well-being. so there is a big part of this so if changing it up makes you feel better I'm delighted I don't particularly care whether there's a scientific reason why that's the case I'm not bothered about that because what matters is 
are you managing and are we impeding are we impeding your quality of life as little as possible so i don't really care whether how it works or whether it does if it works for you it works for you and that's all i'm interested in so yes so one of the things splitting the dose for tamoxifen some people find helpful now actually when tamoxifen was first introduced it was given as a twice a day drug and then it became apparent that it made no difference whether you gave it twice a day or once a day once a day is easier for people to take so there's no problem in splitting the dose to twice a day and some people find that that's helpful um, taking the drug at night can be helpful if, if you experience nausea so some people experience nausea for most people that wears off after the baronet for a few weeks but if nausea is a problem then you can take it at night time if you have joint pain that you find gets worse towards the end of the day you can take it at night time and I give people agency and permission to mess around with it as much as they want because I would rather they took it than didn't take it so let's find something that works for them um, one lady said um, there is a trial in Italy about a half a dose yeah. for tamoxifen. Is there such a thing in the UK as well? So there are some trials which are about taking half dose or taking tamoxifen every other day or taking tamoxifen for nine months out of 12, for example. There's lots of different ways of doing it. We haven't got a clear consensus yet about whether that impacts long-term outcome. We don't know that yet. And of course, the difficulty is out with the confines of a trial where we're specifically looking to answer a question, I can't tell people, yes, that's as good as that, because I don't know, is the honest answer. There are so many things about this that we don't actually know. We have to use some common sense. And it's difficult for your doctor to advise you to do something that you might have heard somewhere else when we don't actually have the evidence to back it up because nobody wants to be the person responsible for putting you in a situation where your breast cancer comes back where it might not have done. So I think also having some understanding about what your healthcare professional is coming from as well. You know, we want you to live a long and happy cancer-free life. That's what we're doing this for. And it's difficult for healthcare professionals to say, well, just don't do that or try this instead when we don't actually know if that will impact the outcome for you because nobody wants to be the one responsible for having made decisions that might make a difference to your outcome in the long term. Absolutely. Another oracle from our community who is watching today said there is also liquid tamoxifen. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, obviously I mean, you do. I don't. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can. I'm not sure that necessarily, I mean, again, it might be worth trying if you were really struggling. I think I would probably be trying other things first. Ultimately, the drug is the drug is the drug. Um, there are different brands. So some people will come back and say this particular brand is has less problems for me so that they can make sure they get the same brand from the pharmacist. And that's a discussion to have with your pharmacist that you go to pick it up from. So your GP is usually, because obviously usually these prescriptions will go onto your regular prescription at your GP. GPs can prescribe specific branded um uh, specific branded tamoxifen, for example, um, or specific manufacturers. But actually, the person to have that discussion with is often your pharmacist because they know much more about that kind of thing, who comes from where, and will be able to ensure that they get the supply for you. So having a discussion with your pharmacist about wanting a particular brand can be helpful. Yeah. And a uh, lady is just asking, what is your view on reducing symptoms by swapping from an aromatase inhibitor onto tamoxifen after a period of, say, two years? Yeah, I think that that depends on what your symptoms are, because, for example, we know that tamoxifen is less likely to give you joint pains, probably, than the aromatase inhibitors, but it might be more likely to cause you problems with genitourinary syndrome of menopause, for example. So I think it depends what your symptoms are. That would be a discussion to have based on your individual situation. But yes, so if somebody came back to me and said, I cannot take this anymore, um, I really don't think, based on what I understand about the benefits for me and the side effects I'm having, I can take this, then I might say to them, what about tamoxifen? That might be, a, that might be because you will still have benefit from tamoxifen. We just know that there's slightly more benefit for postmenopausal women with aromatase inhibitors but there is no benefit if you stop taking it so in some ways it's better to have something than nothing so absolutely that might be something that might be a way forward based on individual circumstances and again you know we need to be mindful here about not suggesting generalities for the reasons that we've already explained using predict it's really important that people get individualized advice about their situation yeah. And just earlier, you mentioned some other prescribable medications to help combat some of the side effects. Is this something you as an oncologist can prescribe for us or needs to prescribe for us? Or who else in our team can help us, say with venlafaxine, yeah. you mentioned the antidepressant? 
So in general terms, most of the prescriptions will come from your GP. So what will happen is either if you've already been discharged from your oncologist or your breast clinic, then your GP would normal would perhaps write if, for example, if we, we can maybe talk about vaginal estrogen separately in a moment. But for example, if your GP wasn't certain about whether something was okay for you, they might ask your oncologist. If you, if they were if you were talking about switching your endocrine treatment, they would ask your oncologist. But if somebody comes to me, for example, and says I'm having these difficulties. I write a letter to their GP and I say, we spoke about this today. I wonder whether vaccine might be an option. I've asked them to come in and have a discussion with you to talk about it. So most prescriptions in the UK will be generated by your GP. They're the person who will do the actual prescribing, but usually they will want advice from your breast care team. So yes, your oncologist, if, 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 if say you had very little really to do with the oncologist, let's say you just had radiotherapy and you were sent away, probably the best point of care if you're not seeing someone regular is your breast care nurse. Your breast cancer specialist nurse is the person to go to because they will know the right person to get in touch with for you to see in terms of discussing these things. But yeah, in general terms, I would suggest the medicines. I would say, I think this might be helpful, but the GP would prescribe them. And your GP will also have their own experience and knowledge. They'll have other patients who've been on um, treatments for this and they may well be happy to institute a treatment for you if you go and discuss it with them. Mm. At the very beginning of our conversation, you said that the compliance rate is actually quite low for medications like that because of the severity of symptoms. Do you always know when a woman decides to stop their medication yeah. or do you sometimes not even know and women yeah. make that decision themselves? Yeah, I mean, women will decide for themselves as, as it should be. What I would like is for them to be making that decision in conjunction and in partnership with their breast care team so that they know what they're deciding. Now, but equally, it's it's perfectly it is your life and your body and your experience. And that's what's most important. If you come to me and say, I really don't want to take this medicine, we can talk about that, we can figure it out. But ultimately, it is your life and your choice. I just want you to know the basis on which you're making that choice and that you're happy with what that means for you. But yes, absolutely. Women will stop the treatment all the time or they'll stop the treatment and tell us they're taking it, which is even more um, can be even more tricky to, to manage. And I can understand that because everyone wants to be a good patient. You know, that's, you know, people want, they don't want to feel that they're going against the advice they've been given. They don't want to feel they're setting themselves up for a fight with their, their oncologist. And it really shouldn't be like that. This is a partnership. I am going to be looking after you for however long I'm going to be looking after you. And we need this to work together. And you need to be happy with whatever it is that you go away with, because ultimately it is your life. Um, and I'm not going to be there every morning making you take the tablet. It's, you know, it, it, I want you to have the information to feel empowered. Because I, I, as you'll know, Danny, and I'm sure a lot of people will say this to you and in your community, it feels very disempowering. It feels like you have zero control over what's happening. And um, and often there's a lot of fear, which and of course we don't, our, our frontal lobes are not online. There's a lot of fear, so we don't remember a lot of information. Sometimes it's reassuring just to be told what to do. And all of that is, is true. And we support people through that. But ultimately you know, it is your decision about what you do with your body. And as long as you know the decisions that you're making, and then we make those in partnership and I support patients to make whatever decision it is that they want to make that feels right for them. Yeah. And it's so personal and it's also so um, human, isn't it, to not always decide what the evidence is sort of fair because we're such emotional human beings. Yeah. I know women who say, do you know, Danny, if I've got a big work week, I just don't take my tamoxifen because yeah. I know I won't manage. But I take it in the weeks where I know I'm going to be less busy. Like that's a, it sounds like a mad decision to be making, but in a woman's life, it probably makes a lot of sense, doesn't yeah. it? But it I suppose a, a, when we... Sorry, Danny, it makes a lot of sense. And also... Estrogen has become the devil, you know, so there's also something as well about the way in which we talk about these things, you know, that the estrogen has become the devil that will kill me, which actually, that's not necessarily true either. But that's the kind of way that the kind of ways that we emotionally set ourselves up to discuss some of these things. And it's very easy for me over here to sit and be rational about the facts, but it's not my life. It's, you know, so there's something about understanding that the emotionality of this is really, really important. Um, and being able to understand, for me to be able to understand what actually are the underlying fears, because people will come and sometimes people have set themselves up for a fight with their oncologist. They come in, they're quite bristly, you know, I want this, I want, but actually that's usually just a symptom of this, some underlying fear. So actually 
what are the fears and what can we get really, what can we understand about the nature of what those fears are and the likelihood and the risk and what things sometimes a simple sentence for me will dispel that fear for them. You know, so there's something about understanding that this really is a very emotive situation and facts and reason are not the way forward. Understanding what people's fears are and dealing with them from that place is actually what makes a difference. And that that's the connect piece, you know, at the end of the day, it's called healthcare. You know, this is about care. That's yeah. the way that I choose. To, you know, it's about caring for people. And that means caring for them in the round and whole and also for what that means for the rest of their life. Yeah, I've never had a single appointment with my own oncologist without having real big sweat patches under my armpits. My anxiety was so high. My heart rate was through the roof, sitting down in the waiting room. I think my pulse was jumping out the side of my neck and every appointment even in the years when it was just a follow-up it felt really emotive and so I can only imagine that when a woman comes to the point where she says I can't do tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitor I can't do it anymore it's so it's too much that there's also a lot of guilt because we want to be doing everything to improve our survival right and we have families and parents and other people that depend on us to make that decision must be so tough and to then make it a alone without your oncologist must be even tougher and I wonder whether a lot of really bigger feelings like shame um the feeling that we're not good enough something's wrong with us we haven't been strong enough to stay on this treatments maybe come with it so much negativity must be tough yeah and I think that's where the the whole kind of thinking about people as a whole is really important you know and and recognizing that that breast cancer aftercare needs to encompass some of all of that it needs to encompass how do you feel about what has happened to you how do you feel about your body you know many women will come and sit and they'll say to me they feel that the body has let them down for example they'll have these feelings of guilt around what has um what their um their experience of choosing or not choosing certain treatments are and you know and I say to people you know I I hear what you're saying about not wanting to let your family down so that's often a big one that you've just mentioned there well you don't want to let my family down say yeah but do you think your family want you to live like this for the next 10 years you know there's there's and and with all of these things there is never a right and a wrong answer there is what is right right now that's what you have to make the decision is and you can only make the decision that you can make right now and whatever the future is going to hold the future is going to hold but the decision that you made at the time was the right one at the time yeah what if people go a little bit um out there and explore there is a lady who said she takes antihistamines and cherry supplements uh, to combat uh, her aches um, mm-hmm. She's on letrozole. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's okay when people go and yep. and try different things? Like absolutely, yep. I have. I I am a because I can't know what will work for you. I think that's the really important thing. I one I've never experienced it personally. Now I don't think we have to experience things personally really to know. Particularly when you're spending all day every day with people who are telling you what their experience is. So I understand an experience in broad sense, but I don't know what it feels like, and I also don't know what's going to work for you. And so I say to people, there are very few things that are going to be problematic for your breast cancer in terms of herbal supplementation and things like that. And I say to people, go and try things. If you've heard about something, try it. It's unlikely that we're going to have any problems with any of it. If you want to check in with us about whether we think it's safe, then absolutely let's do that. But actually, you are the best judge of whether this is going to be good for you or not. So go and try it. And if it works, brilliant, it works. That's what matters. It's the fact that you have found a way for you that means that you can stay on this treatment that you want to stay on. And as an oncologist, is there a top tip you can help us with brain fog? Because I'm sure cancer or no cancer, we get to our 40s, 50s, brain fog is part of many people's experiences. And we also know, and I think that's the crazy thing, is people who have not had chemotherapy can experience chemo brain. So there's more going on, right? And and it can be really debilitating and it can stop people from working and that can really stop them from wanting to go on treatments like that. Is yeah. there anything we can do about brain fog? So I think Apart brain... from putting your phone down. <laughs> so brain fog is quite a difficult one, I think, to manage. So in the in the general menopause population, if we think about it there, there's a, there's a lot of chat about testosterone for sharpness, um, mental clarity and sharpness. And actually, but actually we don't actually have any real evidence that that's the case. Um, I think there is also something about acceptance in all of this. We are aging beings, okay? So when we can't, even if we talk about menopause, or obviously it's a bit different if you're in an earlier menopause because of your breast cancer treatment, for example. But there is something about recognizing that we are none of us going to be aging. 
and that some aspects of this are also about acceptance and working around who we are now, not who we were when we were 25. So there's some aspects of some of that about reaching a place of acceptance of, okay, this has happened to me. This is the treatment that I'm taking because this has happened to me. And this is a consequence and I need to find a way to get good with that, whatever that might mean. But, but your brain fog. So nutrition, I think, is one of the ways nutrition and exercise have some elements of of um, and brain training so that's the other thing is that we know in terms of even if we just look at dementia care for example leaving you know leaving all of this aside you know training your brain so there might be that actually looking for brain training apps and things to help keep you cognitively sharp might also be something that'd be helpful because it might not just be the experience that you've had we are also aging and there are ways to look at that so looking at cognitive decline and older age brain training exercise stopping smoking weight reduction all of those kind of things that we know are generally better for our health and for our cognitive health in the long term but there isn't a pill for brain fog and i think as well there's also something to understand about the, the that big emotional overlay that we've we've discussed can contribute to how we're feeling cognitively we cannot be in our rational minds when our emotional minds are and fear-based responses are running the show because the fear will always win out, which makes us less sharp. So there's also something about managing the fear and anxiety that we're experiencing that might become chronic over time because that also makes us less cognitively sharp. Yeah, there's a lovely lady called Louise and she's just saying, not being able to string a sentence together and forgetting the word that you want to say, not sure, I need to accept that just yet. Fair enough, Louise, don't accept yes. it. <laughs> no, absolutely. And there is also something about about understanding that that may have happened to you anyway, maybe earlier if you've had breast cancer, maybe you've had an earlier menopause than you might have done, but you may have experienced that at menopause time anyway. So there is also something about um, recognising that we are also ageing and some of the, not necessarily accept and working around but also just to, just an understanding that um not all of these things are purely down to breast cancer or breast cancer treatment yeah i'm going to um there is um a point i want to make about the predict tool and i've, I've sort of got it in my head still and i thought you know when people are so many women i know they're really really powering through and working really hard they're exercising they're exercising a lot every week because we know that can reduce the risks of a recurrence. Many women change their diet because you know or you feel you want to change and you put yourself up for success, really. That is never part of any predict tool, right? As an oncologist, no. like surely it makes a difference if a woman is out there exercising loads or if she's not, if she's drinking loads of alcohol or if we've sort of, um, we've you know, we've reduced our units, if we've stopped smoking. All of those things are also part of our risks and yeah. benefits right and, and we don't know yet about some of those things so yes we make the assumption we know that higher and, and we, we extrapolate some of the information from what we know about a risk of getting breast cancer in the first place so we know alcohol contributes to breast cancer in the first place we know that weight contributes to breast cancer in the first place what we don't know from data yet although we can see common sense wise that it might make sense what we don't know is does reducing your weight after you've been diagnosed, reduce your risk of recurrence. We imagine that it might do, and there's lots of reasons why we might imagine that might be the case, because when, when we explain this process of the aromatization, so that's the creation of estrogen within your body that the, the, the aromatase inhibitors get in the way of, that you make more estrogen if you're fatter, because it happens in fat cells. So we can see why, we have ideas why those things might be true, but we don't actually know them from data. But there are some ongoing studies around weight loss and cancer recurrence. So one, there's been some, product, some studies to show that yes, we can support people to lose weight after breast cancer. What we need to do now is we need to wait for those people to live long enough for us to know whether we did reducing their weight reduce the risk of recurrence. So we don't know any of that, Danny. We assume it to be the case. And it's also good for the rest of your health because if you look at that, that Tripti lady we had at the beginning, 93% of, of people are like Tripti are going to live anyway. But reducing their weight, their alcohol intake and reducing their weight and increasing their exercise is going to reduce the risk of them dying of a heart attack or something else. So we know that, you know, those lifestyle factors are useful for the rest of you. But what we don't know specifically yet is do they make a difference to recurrence? Mm. But that's the beautiful thing, isn't it? Because we are still a whole human being, yeah. even after our breast cancer diagnosis. Absolutely. And it's so important that we live for all of us, for our whole health, for our future health, and that we don't just make decisions based on our left boob or right boob. Yeah. And Absolutely. yeah, um, there's another lady who just said lion's mane is fab for brain fog, um, cognitive impairment. And so that's another person who's gone out there, probably done her research. Yeah. Um 
Claire, there is probably so much more we could say and have so many more conversations about this. I'm hoping that whatever we talked about today has been really helpful for people. We've been having loads of messages already. I might read one or two more messages out. If, is that okay for you? Of course. Why is weight loss so very important? Um, also being overweight, does this increase the risks of DVT on tamoxifen? Do we need to be more careful traveling on tamoxifen? Okay, so let's deal with the weight loss first. The weight loss is important because we know that weight loss, weight, obesity is a risk factor for breast cancer. It is, in fact, probably the biggest modifiable risk factor for breast cancer. So you can't do anything about the fact that you're a woman and you've got boobs. You can't do anything about the fact that you're aging, which are the top two risk factors for getting breast cancer. And um, you can't do anything about your underlying genetics, et cetera, et cetera. But the biggest lifestyle implication that you can that you can undertake is to lose weight, to reduce your risk of breast cancer in the beginning. Now, as I've just said, we don't know yet that reducing it reduces the risk of a recurrence if you've already had breast cancer, but it may reduce the risk of you having a second breast cancer, for example. So weight Weight loss is really, really important. And, and I don't think we talk about that enough with women. And I think also we shy away from it a little bit in terms of patients and their understanding, but because you've just been diagnosed with breast cancer, who the hell wants to be banging on about and you've got to lose weight? You know, so I think, but we know that, that weight is a really significant risk factor for breast cancer. And it's the most moderate, it's the biggest risk that we can actually do something about. So that's why I'm talking about weight here. Um, but with the caveat that I don't know, we don't know generally yeah, in the scientific community, whether reducing your weight will reduce your risk of a recurrence. But we do know that it's a very big risk or one of the bigger risks of breast cancer that we can actually do something about. And the second question was about tamoxifen and DVT risk. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, tamoxifen increases your risk of um, clots and DVTs in the same in a similar way to the way that the pill increases your risk of clots and DVTs. But we don't actually talk to people about that in the same kind of way, even though the pill is a greater risk than tamoxifen. But yes, certainly I mean, you are unlikely to be given tamoxifen if you have a past history yourself of having had a DVT unprovoked. Cancer itself, of course, is a risk for DVT of itself. And that's usually more um, likely in the setting where someone has secondary breast cancer or breast cancer that's come back after their primary. But um, yes, it does increase your DVT risk. And if you feel more comfortable using flight socks, for example, then do that. And just be mindful of the fact you're at a slightly higher risk than you would have been otherwise. Yeah. One last question and then one last comment for you. What happens at the end of the five years? I have another two years to go, but I'm already getting worried about finishing the hormone treatment. It feels like a safety net. Yes. And I think it's quite common in my experience for people when they're coming to the end of a block of treatment. So it maybe it might be the end of their chemo or the end of the radiotherapy that there's a, there's a bubbling anxiety comes because it feels like some sort of safety, some sort of holding if they're either on treatment or or um or at least know that they've got some kind of contact with people. So I think to, to be looking at the end of your hormone treatment and being worried, what I would say is that's two years, that's a lot of worry if you're two years away. So there's something there <laughs> about managing that anxiety, understanding and acknowledging that it's here now, but re recognizing is that doing you any favors? So there's something in that, I think. But again, it will depend whether you're going to be offered extended endocrine treatment. So that might be whether you might be offered an endocrine treatment to continue for 10 years. Um, again, that will come down to what your individual situation is and whether extended endocrine treatment is something that would be useful for you. So that might be something that you want to be thinking about um, and talking to the team about. And if you're not sure, if you've been discharged from an oncology clinic, for example, maybe contact your breast care nurse and talk about that. But yes, I think understanding and recognising that the ends of things can be psychologically difficult um, and understanding that, you know, if you're taking the treatment and you don't feel too bad on it and it feels like a safety net, you might choose to continue to take it for 10 years. But you need to know why you're doing that. You need to know what the benefits are and you need to know what the longer term risks are. And it depends what treatment you're on. So for aromatase inhibitors, long term risks of osteoporosis and fractures and all of those kind of things need to be taken into account. So I think for that particular person, I would be thinking, is two years of worry worth it? That's the first thing. And how can we help you manage that worry? And secondly, what are your options at five years? Thank you. Cannot thank you enough for today. I have got more yeah. out of the last hour than I have in six years since my diagnosis. Oh, bless you. <laughs> 
I'm sure everyone is now thinking, I wish Claire was my oncologist, including me. Um, another lady said, absolutely brilliant. I've learned more in 45 minutes than I have in the past two years since my diagnosis. Thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm and the really lady who... Helpful. And the lady who was worried about coming off her treatment in two years says, brilliant answer. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I hope we can get you back for a little bit more troubleshooting with our favorite oncologist. Perfect. <laughs> Maura said, thank you so much. And yeah, Claire, really from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Danny. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful and glad that this session has been super useful to all of you who have joined me live and I really hope it's useful for all of you who are going to watch it back. It is a real passion of mine to connect a community of women, all of you at home, who are in this menopause malarkey since their cancer diagnosis with a community of experts and Claire's done a fantastic job today at helping us answer so many of our questions and we're going to do more so in the future. I want this podcast to be a real learning and doing podcast for you and I'm going to plan lots more sessions where I have real women from our community join the podcast recording so that I get to ask your questions live whilst I'm with these amazing experts so that we can make it even more interactive than it already is. I hope um, you're well and I hope you take a little bit of time with a cup of tea to digest this session. Sometimes looking at all these facts and figures can put you back into very traumatic experiences. You've all been through so much by just being here. I know you've had lots and lots of difficult situations in your life. Looking at these statistics, like I said earlier, can be really tough, can be really triggering. And so I hope you can spend a little bit of time now. I'm going to go out for a walk. I just sometimes need to digest walking, walking it off. I'm still preparing and planning and training for a walking challenge. And so that's going to be my way of decompressing, of digesting all of this information. And I'm sending you lots of love. Take it easy. And I can't wait to see you on the podcast next week. <music>